Hi, before we get started with this month's podcast, I'd like to make a shameless plug for you to join SNAC, the Society for Neuroscience and Anesthesiology and Critical Care. Being a member gets you access to consensus guidelines, fellowship directory, job postings, not to mention all the other great stuff put out by the Education Committee. We even publish our newsletter in English and Spanish. There's also our mobile app that's available in the iTunes Store or for Android devices. So, if your heart is in the brain, you belong with us. Welcome to this month's episode of the Periscope Podcast, sponsored by the Education Committee of the Society of Neuroscience and Anesthesia and Critical Care. I'm Dr. Mitch Weinstein of the University of Pennsylvania, and this month, I'm speaking with Dr. Ahab Farag of the Cleveland Clinic about airway management in patients with cervical spine disease. Dr. Farag is a professor of anesthesiology at the Cleveland Clinic and Lerner College of Medicine. He's also the director of clinical research for the Department of General Anesthesia and Outcomes Research. Dr. Farag has also recently written a review article on airway management in cervical spine surgery that was published in the March 2016 edition of Best Practice and Research in Clinical Anesthesiology. Thank you, Dr. Farag, for speaking with me here today. Dr. Farag, just to start off with, can you just go over some of the basic cervical spine pathologies that we would see as an anesthesiologist? The main issues are the we facing, especially in the uh, in the field of the neuroanesthesia, we are facing with the patients coming for mainly the cervical spondylitic myelopathy, and this is one of the major the uh, degenerative disease that it is usually the uh, compromises the most of our surgery of the cervical spine, and the, followed by the patient with the rheumatoid arthritis, which also contribute part of the major surgeries that we are doing for cervical spine, and then the trauma for cervical surgery, especially the motor vehicle accidents trauma or any other trauma that affecting uh, that that affecting the population. There, those the main issues that we are dealing with for cervical spine. And all of them needs a little bit of attention and the on the evaluation how we can manage the upper airway for these cases. In addition, that the post-operative complication of the upper airway management of the uh, cervical spine surgery can, despite that there are not frequently, however, it can be turned into a catastrophic outcome if not handled properly. So, so I'm curious, do you guys at Cleveland Clinic, every time you have a patient, say for a, a gallbladder surgery or something else, who has a rheumatoid arthritis, do you always make sure that you have cervical spine x-rays on, on all of those patients or only certain ones of them? The trying as much as we can to clear the cervical spine. If not, we can examine the patient thoroughly and also asking about uh, the history of the rheumatoid, how, how long the rheumatoid arthritis with them and examine them. And don't forget that about 20% of the, or might be even 30% of the pe people are asymptomatic with rheumatoid arthritis have been found that they have radiological, they are unstable radiologically. So those patients need a lot of attention. Even if you don't have a clearance, you have to be very careful about how you handle the upper airway of those patients. But if you don't have clearance, do you automatically go right to a fiber optic or what do you do? I tend to be, uh, at least if the patient had no symptoms and short history of the rheumatoid arthritis, I usually do a sleeve fiber optic for them. If the patient had any symptoms or long history and I don't have a clearance, 
and showed me that they have incidents or or symptoms, I try to do a weak fibroptic for those patients. And how about your Down syndrome patients? Do all of those folks get cleared before they have like an elective surgery? Usually we have a clearance for them, especially the Down syndrome, is because those people usually starting the problem with them usually in the pediatric age. So they usually have a frequent operations. So usually they've been followed and we have a, a, a they've been followed in the frequent basis with the neurosurgeons and all and so all of them usually they have most of them have some sort of neurological clearance of them. You tend to do just a lot of oral fiber optics, whether or not they're asleep first or whether or not it's an awake fiber optic. Am I correct? That exactly yes. We we're doing most of our except if it is indicated we're doing oral fiber optic because the nasal fiber optic, sometimes we have a problem with bleeding and post-operative, the, this bleeding can be a little bit profuse bleeding and we don't like to deal with them. But if it is indicated for nasal, yes, we do, we do that. If it is a requirement from the surgeon, like the, the transoral approach of the cervical spine, yes, those patients, we do the uh, nasal uh, intubation. Do you guys tend to do neuromonitoring for like, uh, say, elective sp- uh, cervical spine surgery if they're myelopathic? It is also a surgeon-driven situation. If the surgeon, some of the surgeons are so adamant to do the sensory and motor neuro uh, monitoring, some of the surgeons don't care about it. So it depends upon the surgeon himself or herself. A lot of folks believe if you use a video laryngoscopy and some inline stabilization or put an LMA in perhaps, that you don't get as much movement. But I read in your article that some things disagree with that statement. Exactly. The video laryngoscope does do not do not achieve the the neutrality like the or the or the fire like the fiber optic, especially in the upper cervical from C1 to C4. From C5 to T1, usually the video laryngoscope, the glycoscope decreases the movement by 50%, not more than that. And the intubating uh, LMA usually producing a lot of pressure in the cervical spine. The ordinary LMA is producing less, um, less pressure. And even I publish a case when the patient has been during the operation of the cervical spine and the patient had a history of myelopathy, and the, uh, during the exposure, we found that the tube being kinked, the Parker tube being kinked, and we had to change the tube during surgery. And we used the, uh, the ordinary LMA and the entry technique, and it went very easy. We published this case about 10 years ago or more in the Journal of Clinical Anesthesia. So, you know, when I do, my, when I do oral fiber optics, frequently uh, I do a little uh, jaw lift just to get the epiglottis up to give myself a better view. Yeah, exactly. That we, we do that. However, the jaw thrust and jaw lift can produce also under radiological monitoring, can produce movement. So if you are going to do these maneuvers, you have to be very careful that you don't do excessive of this maneuver because they can move the cervical spine. And if you're going to do it, do it for a short period of time and try to minimize the movement of the neck as much as you can. Don't do very, very rough. So try to do minimizing these maneuvers. I usually talk to the surgeons prior to the operation and ask them whether the spinal canal is tight or can I have any movement in the cervical spine during uh, induction or any kind of ventilation. And often they say it's not so bad, and we do get away with using laryngoscopes or a little bit more jaw thrust. It all depends upon the patient. It all depends upon the patient and the symptoms. 
So if the patient, if we examine the patient and the patient is easy intubation and has no myelopathy, yes, and the, the symptoms is just pressure on the nerves in the foramina and the, and the spinal canal is patent, yes, any things can work. But when you look at the patient preoperative and you look at the x-rays and look at MRI and found it that you have a lot of osteophytes there and the patient, the tightness of the cervical spine canal is pressing on the spinal cord. Here you have to raise the equations. And at the end, it depends upon your evaluation and the preoperative. And you look at the patient, it is not, I cannot give you a cookbook for what is going on. You have to look at the patients, examine patient, look at MRI, see how patent the spinal canal, and there is a space for the spinal cord. There are for the patient and osteophytes for spondylosis. I had an x-rays and have an MRI, uh, see the osteophyte impinging on the spinal cord. And though during intubation, if any movement, this impinging certainly will injure the spinal cord. So it depends upon you and your examination and your dialogue with the neurosurgeon or the spine surgeon doing this case. When I tend to do my uh, awake fiber optics, I'll use some Presidex, uh, things like that. And I got I have gotten away from doing a lot of the uh, airway blocks because people's necks have gotten so big. It's sometimes a little hard to find that anatomy. What method do you use? How do you go about doing your awake? I agree with you 100%. In my technique, either using the Presidex for sedation or Ranifentanil. When I'm using Ranifentanil, I use it in the same dose when it's being used as the IBPCA for the OB anesthesia, when they use the infusion, continuous infusion, 0.05 mic per kilogram body weight per minute, and I can go lower for the patients, the elderly patients. Or if I don't like to have any compromisation of the respiration, I use the dexmetomidine and I use the um, spraying the upper airway, and I'm very good in that, and I did tons of that without the need for the upper airway block. If we need that or the patient is so difficult, yes, we do the block, but I keep, keep the blocks or the needles on the neck of the patient as the last resort. But mainly I use these medication and I use minimal amount of Versed or fentanyl or anything, but mainly depending on either dexmetomidine or anything. That is my technique. What about in the event of someone who has a traumatic injury to their neck? Uh, do you change? Do you change your approach to the airway at all? It depends. It, it, it depends upon the patient. If the patient is awake, and if the patient is uh, maintaining the respiration and awake and cooperative, uh, you do awake fiber optic very simple. If the patient is obtunded and I. Uh, we have to, I, I have to induce anesthesia and intubate the patient, either a sleeve fiber optic or we use the, try to minimize the neck as much as we can. The most important for this traumatic patient is maintaining the oxygenation to avoid the second injury, the second hypoxic injury to the brain and the spinal cord. I've seen some awake fiber optics just not look so slick. They're moving around a lot in a collar that doesn't fit them real well and they flinch back. Have you ever uh, had some of those experiences? And if you have, what have you done? One of the cases was mentally retarded and she couldn't tolerate awake fiber optics. So I had to induce an assistant and I did a sleep fiber optic. The other patient that she was very cooperative. However, every time we try to, despite the very good numbing, the every time to trying to do the uh, passing the, through the cord, she coughed. So I had to do the transtracheal injection. And then after that, the vocal cords being completely numbed. So I had to intubate her very easy after. So those is the cases. And if getting too tough to me, 
or so difficult for a week, I have here a sit back, think about what is the alternative, uh, if it's, it's going to be easier to do a sleep or not. But it all depends upon the upper airway management and examining the patient and the patient symptoms. So there is, unfortunately, there's no cookbook can work for every single patient. Every single patient has to be taken as a single identity and a single story to be built differently. Can we go back to something that you spoke about earlier? You mentioned that direct laryngoscopy, even with inline stabilization, video laryngoscopy, LMAs, or just using some jaw thrust, all cause some movement of the cervical spine. But that movement is measured in millimeters. I know that the movement is statistically significant, but do you think that it makes much of a clinical difference? It is, it is not about the movement. It is also about the pressure you exert during. So, yes, the video laryngoscope exerted lesser pressure than the direct laryngoscopy, but still there is a pressure being exerted. Fibro-optic is the least one to exert such pressure and the least one to exert such a movement. And it might be in certain cases that detrimental cases if the spinal cord under pressure, especially in the spondylosis, because the spinal canal is completely narrow, and this static pressure can be changed into a dynamic during intubation, and that this can binge on the spinal cord and producing ischemia. If you are aware of this case, of the couple of cases by the central cord syndrome that those patients, one of them during total hip replacement patient with a cervical spondylosis. I, I don't know if they are aware of that or not. And intubated with direct uh, laryngoscopy and the patient waking up with completely quadriplegia. So that patient was someone who was having a hip surgery, yes. had some pre-existing cervical spondylosis. She was not, he or she was not there for that surgery. And the direct laryngoscopy, just straight up intubation for the hip surgery, they wound up developing a central cord syndrome. Exactly. And, and unfortunately, the salvage for that was, uh, was not successful. The patient was, uh, was uh, stayed in the quadriplegic with minimal improvement. Another patient in published in the, from the UK was published in 2002, and also I put it in the, uh, in the paper about the using for patients coming for laparoscopic, uh, laparoscopic cholecystectomy, and, into, and they put the LMA, ordinary LMA, because I think in, in UK they can use LMA for controlled ventilation. I don't know. Anyway, so they did the surgery under LMA, and surgery was very short procedure. Uh, lab coli didn't take time, went uneventful, very easy. And then uh, waking up the patient, patient couldn't move. Did an MRI. They found that the patient had a f infarction of the posterior longitudinal ligament, and the patient, despite that, they did rapid decompression. The patient stayed in quadriplegia. We don't hear a lot, but one case can be very catastrophic for the patient himself or herself. So we have to be careful what what we taking care of this upper way because sometimes it's going to be subtle weakness or subtle changes, and we didn't notice. But these subtle changes can change and can can either progress or regress with time. We don't see all the we don't see except the major changes, but sometimes these subtle changes can can affect the patient life in the future. Do you have any suggestions about research that should be done to improve how we manage the airway? We have to look at the large database of the trauma 
and the different comparing different techniques of the uh, different techniques of intubation in the trauma, and we have to revise our understanding. The manual and line stabilization, we have to rethink about it. Are we are going to use it or, or not? That is the most important. And also, there are no randomized studies comparing the different techniques and the outcomes of those patients. They create a national database to compare the different techniques of upper airway management during cervical spine surgery and their complications. This is what we need in the future. I have to be honest with you, Dr. Farag. I've worked in both private practice and in academics, and I know that many patients with rheumatoid arthritis or cervical spondylosis come in for some non-spine surgery like a cholecystectomy or an elective orthopedic procedure, and it is not common to have any imaging of the cervical spine available to the anesthesiologist to evaluate for instability or significant stenosis. As, as I said, not because we don't see it frequently, that means that we have to neglect but this can be a catastrophic. Like, for example, the same story, the same idea like post-operative vision loss after spine surgery in prone position. Yes, it is, we don't see it frequency. It is minimal. However, it is catastrophic for the patient. That's right. When it does happen, if it, God forbid, happens, it can be very devastating. Yeah, because I, I had a patient, and this is a personal story, that the patient developed sensory changes and numbness in the hand post-operative and when, the, when we looked at the MRI, the patient had cervical spine disc. However, when I looked at how I managed that, I did sleeve fiber optic. At the same time, I was very careful about the neutral position of the neck during favor. The patients came for the total hip replacement. And this is the reason that there was no any kind of accusation of the malmanagement of, malmanagement of the patient. So it went very easy and there is no any accusation. There is nothing because from the beginning, I was careful about the patient. And this is how we can, even if something happened to the patient, however, our management was uh, perfect and immaculate. So that can even can lead to, even if the complications happen, the outcome is not going to be bad and complication can happen, but is not catastrophic to the patient. And this is important. In our earlier conversation, you mentioned that you wanted to make sure that we spoke about Greisel syndrome. Can you remind us about what exactly is Greisel syndrome? Because it happens pretty rarely. Yeah, the, the last thing that I would like to reiterate about it is the people, I didn't know it except when I started reading about it, it's called the Greisel syndrome. I, this is the first time I read about it from the EMT literature, and I found it is very common that the EMT surgeons know about it, that those patients usually producing infection. Oh, from far, for pharyngeal disease. Yeah, and and the very first time being described in the for the patient in the syphilis in the of the late 19th century, and they did get you the subluxation between one and two, and there are a couple of cases couple of cases of the uh, tonsillectomy and the kids waking up with quadriplegia because they developed subluxation of the C1 and 2 due to Greisel syndrome during infection. And so we have to be aware of this infection in the upper airway, especially in the patient with Down syndrome, can lead to increase the subluxation as well. 
So, so l- let me see if I understand. So you're, you're referring to Greisel syndrome is something that's a, it's a non-traumatic subluxation of the Atlantic cell joint, right? Exactly. We have to be very careful. And so it's after someone comes in, they've had some sort of infection from a tonsillar abscess or something like that. They've had some sort of head or neck infection. We intubate them from this. They get all that cleared up. And because we didn't realize that they were having some subluxation and that we inadvertently hurt their cervical spine. Exactly. And even the, if you look at the ENT literature, they found that if the patient maintain, uh, sustained after tonsillectomy and has severe pain in the neck, they usually do, do the CT scan of the neck to rule out the subluxation and the infection of the Greisel syndrome. So you're recommending maybe that sometimes we have to at least think about this. Exactly. Keep it in the back of your mind that there is something going on here and you have to be careful. Uh, especially in the uh, in the Down syndrome patients, because the Down syndrome, the patient have the laxity of the ligaments and the tissues, and we can help to spread of infection. Well, you know, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for talking to us today. Uh, it was really great having you. No, thanks. Thank you very much, Mitch, and I hope that we can see you face-to-face during the snack and the meeting. Well, that's it for this month's Periscope podcast. And I look forward to seeing everyone in Chicago for our 44th annual meeting of Snack at the Intercontinental Chicago Magnificent Mile Hotel on October 20th and 21st before the ASA meeting. If there are any topics you'd like us to cover or have any suggestions or comments, drop us a line at snack at snack.org. That's S-N-A-C-C at snack.org. You can also follow us on Twitter. I know we'd love to hear from you. Till next time.